0: You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. It feels like since the dawn of time, we have, as a society, tried to find ways that make ourselves feel better than others or tried to find ways that make others look worse than us. That shows itself in every kind of prejudice that we see around us in our everyday lives. Unfortunately, if you know much at all about true crime, you also know that this systemic way of thinking seems to creep into every level of law enforcement that exists today as well. The reality is that much like most professions that exist today, law enforcement also is overworked and underpaid. There simply are not enough people to look into all of the crime that exists, and, as such, you tend to get things like we're going to talk about today. Certainly, there are more people at fault in this case than investigators, but this case was picked up by Esquire magazine in April of 2016 for a reason. This case was covered because reporter Tom Junod presented that this case was a case where the person at the center of the story did not trigger what is often called Missing White Woman Syndrome. Instead, Tom attested that this case showed that even for young women that you would reckon would get a publicity storm around their cases, things like previous criminal records and things like drug addiction can turn the volume way down on a media storm. Hello, my name is Lance, and welcome to episode 96 of Gone But Never Forgotten, From Walmart to Nowhere, What Happened to Tiffany Witten. Tiffany Michelle Witten was born on January 30th of 1987 to her mom, Lisa Daniels, and her father. Her parents would get a divorce not long after her birth. Lisa would raise Tiffany in Kennesaw, Georgia. Tiffany would also have a younger sister named Summer, and later a half-brother named Blake. Tiffany was a happy-go-lucky child right from the very beginning, and she was also one of those children that was always on the go and always bouncing off of the walls. Lisa says, though, that she also had a lot of early signs early on of what would become one of her daughter's major issues as she grew older. Tiffany started to steal at a very young age. Lisa says that she remembered Tiffany being only two years old when she started to notice that there were toys in her daughter's toy box that she had not given to her. Tiffany told her mom that the toys were given to her at her daycare, which would turn out to be a lie every time. Lisa says that over the years, sadly, Tiffany did not grow out of that phase. She just got better at stealing and better at deceiving. From an early age, Tiffany wanted to become a veterinarian. She loved animals, she loved seniors, and she loved children. It was clear that she had a great heart and a good spirit, but unfortunately in her sophomore year of high school, things started to unravel for her. She would get pregnant while in school, and then she would eventually drop out of high school in her sophomore year. That first pregnancy and the circumstances after it were incredibly tough on Tiffany, she would later say. Once she gave birth, she was essentially told that she needed to give the child up for adoption, and that is what happened. Tiffany barely ever spoke of the pregnancy and the adoption after the fact, but it was known that it really messed her up to put her child up for adoption. By 2008, she would have a second daughter named Addison, who it seems would likely be mostly raised by her mom and Tiffany herself, and then later by Lisa alone. 2008, though, was also a turning point for Tiffany in another way. That is, reportedly when she started to use Oxycontin recreationally. Here, life started to take a spiral. There are many reports that she had been caught trying to steal at Walmart a few times, and as we're going to see, that need or that desire to steal would wind up costing Tiffany a lot over the next few years. During this time, though, Tiffany was managing to hold down jobs intermittently. She worked various locations as a bartender and as a waitress. In March of 2011, though, Tiffany would really run afoul of the law. Tiffany had moved to Dalton, a town in North Georgia, where she was living with several people. She would get arrested and charged for a home invasion. At the scene, Tiffany would tell officers that the person inside of the home had stolen money from her earlier that day and that she was only attempting to get in so that she could get her money back. Investigators, though, suspected that the money had been given by Tiffany to purchase drugs, and the drugs had never arrived. In late 2012, Tiffany would receive her sentence on the matter. She was sentenced to a short prison term. This incident would become a breaking point between Tiffany and her mom, Lisa. Lisa would decide that she needed to use tough love on Tiffany in the hopes that she would straighten her life out as a result of the prison term and the situation. She said that she would continue to raise Addison, but that she would not speak to Tiffany again until she overcame her addictions and turned her life around to become the woman that Lisa knew that she was capable of being. She told Tiffany that she needed to put that space between them because If she didn't, Tiffany and her addictions and all of her problems were going to kill both of them. Tiffany's grandmother, Anita, though, would stay in touch with Tiffany throughout everything. When Tiffany was released from prison, it was Anita that picked her up and took her home. Soon after her release, Tiffany would enter a drug rehabilitation facility, and Lisa says that she stayed there for about a month. Lisa said that every time that Tiffany tried to clean up, she would make it for about that long, about one month. Tiffany actually seemed to hit the ground running this time when she came back home. She managed to stay off of drugs for a time, and she got a new job being a waitress at the International House of Pancakes restaurant in Marietta, Georgia. However, sadly, as seems to be the case a lot of time when you try to recover from any addiction, Tiffany started to fall into some of her old habits. Tiffany had a relationship end because she had an affair. She had been dating a landscaper, and from all sources it seemed as though it was a healthy relationship for Tiffany. It's believed that she started using again, though, and that is when she had the affair, and that is what caused the end of her relationship she would then get kicked out of the place that she was staying when her roommate sheila fuller kicked her out of the house because sheila found out that tiffany was stealing from her when she got kicked out that is when she met ashley cottle they met early in the summer just a few months after tiffany was released from prison and directly after sheila kicked her out of the house The problem that Ashley presented was perhaps put best in the Esquire article that was written by Tom Janod. He presented that there were two sides to Tiffany. The side that wanted to be in love and have a good job and have a great life and that wanted everything to be as perfect as things could be, but there was also the side that just could not stop using drugs. When she met Ashley, she perhaps believed that she had found a way to defeat the dichotomy of those two sides of herself. She saw a man who, like her, had a young child, and she found someone who treated her alright, in her mind at least, and also provided the lifestyle that she either enjoyed or couldn't break loose from. The two would start dating and start a relationship that seems to also have had a dichotomy to it, depending on who you listen to. After the incidents we're going to talk about, Ashley has explained the story of he and Tiffany as a love story of sorts, of two people who found one another, fell in love, and then were driven apart due to mysterious circumstances. It's romantic, but seemingly not true at all. People that knew the pair and saw them together said that they were frequently fighting and that those fights were often very fierce. At least one of those fights had resulted in police attending to the hotel room that they were fighting at, and on another occasion Tiffany and Ashley had been evicted out of a trailer that they were staying in because their fighting became too intense for people living around them, And they started to fear for themselves and for property. Tiffany would continue on into August with her job at the IHOP, but she would show up for work high, she had fresh needle marks on her arms at times, and she finally was caught on camera stealing money from another waitress at the restaurant, and she would be fired. Anita would still be in touch with Tiffany fairly often, and she was the only member of Tiffany's family that seemed to uh, stay in touch, and the only member of the family that actually met Ashley. On more than one occasion, Tiffany would call Anita looking for help. One time, she asked Anita if she could take them for food because they didn't have any. She said they had the money for food, but they didn't have a way to get to the store. Anita would pick up Tiffany and take her to McDonald's. Anita also recalled a time that Tiffany asked if they, the family, could come do laundry at her house. When Anita asked how much laundry they had to do, Tiffany said everything that they owned needed to be washed. It really was getting to a sad state of affairs, and Anita asked Tiffany why she didn't come home, And Tiffany said that she wouldn't go anywhere without Ashley. Anita followed up that question by asking Tiffany if Ashley had a home that he could go to. Tiffany said that he did, but he also wouldn't go there without her. That conversation would sadly be the last one that Anita would have with her granddaughter. At the end of August, Tiffany, Ashley, and Ashley's daughter would move into the last known residence for Tiffany, a home in Powder Springs. On the night of September 12th of 2013, Ashley and Tiffany would head over to the house of a friend of theirs named Stephen Weinstein. While there, they did drugs, and then shortly after midnight, they borrowed a truck and went to the Walmart store in Marietta, Georgia. The two arrived there around 1 a.m. and started to shop. Loss prevention officers were immediately aware of the pair as they were walking through Walmart because it was very obvious that Tiffany was under the influence of something as she frolicked and seemingly danced through the aisles. She would take clothes off of the rack, look at them, and then put them back and was acting very suspicious through the entire store. Not to mention, at 1 a.m. she stood out in what was likely a very small sea of customers. Ashley was picking out clothes for his daughter and also a portable speaker. And while he was doing that with Tiffany in tow, the loss prevention workers believed that Ashley was concealing clothing with the intention of stealing. According to Ashley, Tiffany wanted to keep shopping, but he told her that he needed to leave because he had places that he needed to be. The two would get in a small argument and then head to the checkouts. Ashley would take a large wad of rolled bills out of his pocket to pay for his items, and then Tiffany abandoned her cart and the two of them headed for the exit. When they got to the exit, Tiffany was stopped by one and then two loss prevention officers. One of the officers grabbed the strap of her purse to hold her and detain her, and on CCTV Ashley can be seen carrying on through the door as Tiffany calls out after him. It seems like Ashley ignores her at first and then turns around only to watch on as Tiffany slipped out of her bag and the grasp of the officer and kicked off her flip-flops and made a run for it. Tiffany didn't run towards the truck though. Tiffany also didn't return for her items. Tiffany was never seen again after she left the CCTV view, running away from the loss prevention officers. Ashley's next actions are according to Ashley and can be corroborated by Sheila Fuller, Tiffany's former roommate and co-worker. The video shows the loss prevention officers waiting, seemingly for Tiffany to return for the items that she had abandoned. Ashley then says that he went to the parking lot to attempt to find Tiffany. He said that he did not go to the borrowed truck because he knew that there were drugs inside and he was afraid of being arrested. He said that he looked around other nearby stores and then headed to the IHOP, the one that Tiffany had formerly worked at. Sheila said that she came across Ashley sitting on a bench outside the restaurant sometime after 2am as she was returning from Walmart herself. Ashley asked Sheila if she had seen Tiffany, and she told Ashley that she would be the last person that Tiffany would want to come and see after she had evicted her. She then asked Ashley if he had tried Tiffany's cell phone, which he showed her, that he had because he said that he was charging her phone for her. Sheila would ask Ashley how he was looking for Tiffany by sitting on a bench and he said that he was waiting for some friends to come to help him look for Tiffany. Sheila said that it took roughly an hour and a half for his friends to show up and then he would arrive in a large SUV. Sheila said that inside she saw a man driving and two women. The man that was in the vehicle was Stephen Weinstein, the man whose house Ashley and Tiffany had attended earlier that night. Weinstein said that Ashley told him about everything that had happened at Walmart, and that Ashley said that he had threatened the loss prevention officers with a knife to get Tiffany freed. Weinstein believed that Ashley was lying, and he was based—he was based on video, but later ashley would also tell other people that he had threatened the officers with a gun weinstein said that ashley is a notorious liar and storyteller after returning to weinstein's house ashley weinstein and another man reportedly drove around the area looking for tiffany and the next morning ashley reportedly drove back to the home that tiffany and he had lived in in powder springs and Ashley spent the next few days trying to find or get in touch with Tiffany. Ashley called old boyfriends, hospitals, and even jails looking for her. Those calls are all backed up by call logs. They did indeed happen. He even told his probation officer about two weeks later that he had not seen or heard from Tiffany since the incident.
1: This week's show is brought to you in part by Reality Times Two, which is a podcast by two fiery Jamaican women who love to dish on the reality TV shows that are current. And they love to dish on the people that they love and the people that they hate. Presently, they are dishing on 90 Day Fiance in all of its iterations, including Before the 90 Days, The Other Way, The Last Resort, and 90 Day Fiance UK. They will also have all the dirt on Love is Blind after the altar, Bachelor in Paradise, Golden Bachelor, and so much more. If you are loving and hating those people on your favorite reality show, you can almost guarantee that Tanika and Ava will be loving and hating them too. Check out Reality Times 2 wherever you take in your podcasts. That is R E A L I T E A times two. And listen to Tanika and Ava as they spill all the tea.
0: The one thing that Ashley did not do, however, was call Tiffany's family. Tiffany's grandmother would hear nothing until approximately two months after her last conversation with Tiffany. That was when she received a civil demand letter in the mail in regards to the incident at Walmart. The letter said that if $150 was paid, there would be no civil suit and the case would be closed. This made Anita start to scramble to see if she could find Tiffany. It was noted that Tiffany had not posted on Facebook since September 1st, which was unusual, and then Anita would call Ashley and ask if he knew where Tiffany was. Ashley told Anita that Tiffany had disappeared the night of the incident at Walmart, and Anita was obviously very upset that Ashley had not told anyone anything. She said that she asked Ashley point-blank why he had not told her or anyone in Tiffany's family that she had gone missing, and Anita said that Ashley seemed to skirt the question, not really giving her any direct answers. Tiffany's family knew that this was far from the first time that Tiffany had gone off-grid or radio silent, and so they decided to give her space and time. She was, after all, 26 years old. They left things and hoped to hear from Tiffany through the holiday season, and then finally decided when they didn't hear from her through Christmas that they needed to start being proactive. On January 10th of 2014, Lisa would officially file a missing persons report. An officer was assigned to the case, and sadly, he essentially acted in the way that Lisa was expecting and afraid the police would act the officer told Lisa that Tiffany was a junkie and Tiffany was a parole jumper and that she would either show back up eventually or she would get arrested somewhere else. You hear things like that so often when you look into missing persons cases or even murder cases and I don't think that it feels less disgusting even when you expect it. The idea that everyone, anyone, could look a family member in the eyes and essentially tell them that their loved one is not really worth time or effort and everything will be just fine based simply on preconceived notions and no evidence really sucks. I said at the top of the episode, though, that I do understand that officers are overworked and there are not enough resources, but... It's heartbreaking nonetheless that it's almost just accepted that some cases will go cold because it didn't, quote, fit the norm, unquote. At the end of January, a detective would finally be given the case. Detective Moeller said as soon as she started to look into the case, she knew that something was different. She knew that Tiffany had taken off in the past and deserted her family, but... Everyone seemed to know that this time was indeed different. Detective Moeller said that she felt right off the bat, like Tiffany was never going to come home, and whatever happened and whoever was behind it had a long, more than four-month head start on her. The The detective has always held strong as well to the fact that the very first time that she spoke with Ashley... She knew that he had at least had something to do with the disappearance of Tiffany Witten. Six months to the day after Tiffany disappeared, a drug enforcement task force would knock down the door of the house in Powder Springs that had been the last known residence of Tiffany. What they found was a squalid home that was covered in dog feces, used needles, firearms, meth, a few bags of marijuana, and sadly two children who would be put into temporary custody of social services because of the squalid conditions of the home. One of those two children was Ashley's daughter. Eight people were arrested in that raid, and it was orchestrated by Detective Moeller. The raid was done because everyone that has seemingly ever touched this case believes that Ashley is guilty of something? And they also believe that the other people in that house may in fact know all, or even some, of the details. They hoped that someone would talk, and special consideration was given to everyone that was arrested if they shared any details of Tiffany's disappearance. Four months after that, police had at least compiled enough information to get and execute a search warrant at the home of Ashley's mom. The police came in with a purpose. They had shovels, they had cadaver dogs, and they had everything that they could use to attempt to find human remains. They dug up areas of the yard and they also dug in the crawl space of her home. Ashley's mom, Peggy Bailey, was even placed in handcuffs because even with the search warrant, she did try to resist the officers. The end result was that some items were sent away for testing, but seemingly nothing came from the search. Throughout all of this, Ashley would not come out with any new details to help investigators. That was either because he chose not to, or frankly because he didn't have anything else that he could offer. Ashley would eventually be sentenced to 20 years in jail with a minimum of 10 to serve before parole considerations. Ashley, of course, says that the sentence was incredibly harsh because the judge believed that Ashley was not being forthright and was not cooperating with the missing person case pertaining to Tiffany Witten. For his part... Ashley has always held to the fact that he doesn't know what happened to Tiffany. Ashley has even said that his mom didn't want him giving comments or taking interviews in jail, but he knew that by not talking, he looked guilty. He said that he has nothing to hide, so he knows that there is no harm in talking to people about the case. After one year on the case, the detective would move on to become an instructor at the police academy, and she says that to this day the case haunts her. She says this was her only case that she had ever had that she was unable to solve and unable to find resolution within. She would be replaced by Mike Freer. In the summer of 2015, a prosecutor in another case named Jesse Evans would get in touch with Freer to tell him that he was working a case with a major meth dealer, and that the meth dealer claimed that he had information regarding Tiffany. The dealer said that he had heard that Ashley and a group of friends had driven to Lake Alatoona, which is one hour north of Atlanta and that they had thrown a large barrel filled with concrete over the side of the Bethany Bridge. The Georgia Department of Natural Resources would use sonar in the area, and they actually did find a heavy, large object that was about 40 feet under the surface of the water near the bridge, and on September 25th of 2015, a dive would take place. Two divers from Georgia State Patrol would dive down, and discover the heavy piece that appeared on sonar, and unfortunately it was not a barrel at all. However, instead, it was just a piece of concrete that had been left behind when the bridge was constructed. From everything that I can see, that was the last search that was done for Tiffany, and in January of 2016, her unsolved file was moved to Cobb County's cold case unit, where it sits to this day. The only other person in this case whose name seems to be floated at all as a suspect is Jason Zuccherini. Jason was an ex-boyfriend of Tiffany's, and Ashley seems to be the main person who floats Jason as a suspect in this case. Ashley seems to vaguely point towards Jason, but investigators have always believed that if Ashley actually knew anything about Jason or any involvement that he had with Tiffany, Ashley would rat him out in a moment. So, they have no evidence that leads them to look into Jason at all. There was one outlier in this timeline. After the disappearance of Tiffany, it seems as though all interactions with anyone stopped. Except for one. On or around January 5th of 2014, It was said a message was sent on Tiffany's Facebook account to her half-brother, Blake Whitten to wish him a happy birthday. It has never been determined who sent that message, though. Lisa believes that it's evidence that Ashley still had Tiffany's phone, and was trying to give the illusion that she was still alive to make him look not guilty. Blake said in the interview with Esquire that Tiffany called him about five days after his birthday on an app. He said that the police had not ever asked him about the call. He did say that it was a weird number because it came from an app, and he almost didn't answer, but that he did, and Tiffany was on the line. Blake says that she apologized for calling so late for his birthday. When Blake was asked if he was sure that it was Tiffany on the phone, he said that she had used a nickname that she had always called him and not very many people knew, which was Mudbug. Obviously, it's unlikely that Blake is lying. There would seemingly be no reason for him to do so. But it is certainly strange that that call happened so long after Tiffany disappeared. And now, so long before now, and there was never... Any contact again. Certainly this is an anomaly in this case and something that seemingly has never been proven or disproven. I think that the problem in this case is time and for a number of reasons. Detective Moeller for example said that with four months gone she was well behind whatever happened to Tiffany. Obviously things like video surveillance were not kept for four months save for Walmart, because they saved the footage for prosecution purposes. There was nothing really to go on. However, you can understand why Tiffany's family was remiss to go to the police here also. First, you never know how long someone with a history of disappearing will disappear for. Second, they knew that a mid-twenties woman with a history of legal troubles and drug problems was probably not going to rank very high for police. But further to that, the fact that Detective Moeller and seemingly everyone involved in this case from the family and law enforcement believed that Ashley was guilty and the only person of interest in this case, I think that severely hindered this investigation as well. How does nobody even talk to Tiffany's half-brother for years Why was there seemingly no time or effort put into looking into other people in this case? And, of course, why did the police drag their feet at the beginning when Tiffany's family finally filed a missing persons report? As far as where I stand on Ashley, I think that from everything that I've learned that it's clear to say that this guy is obviously a dirtbag. He's a drug dealer. He's an addict and he's a bullshitter to the nth degree. This is a guy that told people that he threatened loss prevention with a gun or a knife, even though there would clearly be video footage that proved that he did not. This guy liked to make himself look tougher than he ever was. For that reason, I think that there is really zero chance that if Ashley knew what happened to Tiffany, he wouldn't have told many people what happened, and been convicted by now. This is not the type of man who seemed like he could keep a secret. Obviously, this is just an opinion coming from someone that's on the outside. I do think that Tiffany sadly fell into a spiral that we often see with addicts and recovering addicts. It's never easy to get away from the addiction. She was pulled back in, and the drugs ruined whatever semblance of normal that she had going on after she went to rehab and had cleaned up her life. She cheated on her boyfriend, she stole from her roommate, and her work, and she lost her home and her job, causing her to become desperate again. In Ashley, as I mentioned, she found some kind of middle ground that she thought could make her her life happy. But as far as what happened on September 13th of 2013, I honestly don't even know where to start. The best that I can do is put this story out into the stratosphere like I always do, and hope that someone that knows something stumbles across our little podcast, and if they do, I hope that they're moved to help solve this case. If Ashley knows something, I would bet every dollar that I have ever made or will make he has told someone because he cannot keep his mouth shut. The problem there, though, is that even if he did talk, nobody could believe the words coming out of his mouth. It's a strange case indeed. Tiffany Witten went missing on September 13th of 2013 in Marietta, Georgia, and she was last seen having an interaction with Walmart loss prevention officers. She was twenty-six years old at the time of her disappearance, and she would be thirty-six years old now. Two days after this episode drops, will be the tenth anniversary of Tiffany walking out of that store, and seemingly walking into the abyss. Tiffany was between five foot two and five foot five inches tall, and weighed approximately one hundred and five pounds. She was last seen wearing a tank top under a light-colored V-neck shirt that had a design on the front. She was wearing dark blue jeans, a tan belt, a dark colored headband, and no shoes or socks. She is a Caucasian female, had blonde hair, green eyes, and tattoos on her lower back, shoulder blade, both hips, her right buttock, and her right foot. She also has a tattoo of Chinese symbols on the inside of her left wrist, and a tattoo of a butterfly on her hip. Her natural hair color is brown. If you know anything about the disappearance of Tiffany Witten, please call the Marietta Police Department at 770-794-2366. I'll close out this week's episode by asking you to join me on any of our socials, and please let me know what you think about this case. Are you in the camp that believes that Ashley is guilty here? Or are you with me, wondering if that belief is what has allowed the real kidnapper, killer, or both of the above to get away with their crimes now for 10 years? I'm on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, X, and of course our Patreon site, and would love to converse with you about this case. It gets a little boring just living with my own thoughts and not having discussions. Plus, conversation draws in more people, and makes for more conversation. Let's get that snowball headed down the hill together, and find more goners, and hopefully get the word out to find more people and solve more cases together. Until next week, love on your loved ones and make the most of every moment that you have with them. And as a part of that, ensure that you're always working hard to be better in the world around you. Thank you for listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. See you next week.